0: This morning we are continuing our study in First Timothy chapter two, relating to women in worship, and we have come to the text that many have been waiting for. And uh, I think you will find it interesting, but rather clear as we look at it in great detail this morning. After we had accepted God's call to come to Calvary Bible Church, we were looking for houses to buy, and as we went from house to house, the owners were usually not there. We would usually call ahead, the realtor would, and and there would be no one home. But in one case, there, the owners wanted to be there, and they were waiting when we came. We knocked on the door, and This lady opened up and began to speak a mile a minute, and the first thing out of her mouth was, Hi, I am the pastor of such and such a church. And my first thought was, You may be the pastor of your church, but not Christ's church. Because Christ has never called a woman to pastor a church. Ever. The scriptures are clear that the office of pastor, shepherd, Overseer and elder are male-only functions. They are offices to be held by males and males alone. Yet in the last 10 to 15 years, women pastors, preachers, and elders have become more and more common. As a matter of fact, they are in some cases surpassing male leaders in various church denominations. The feminist agenda wants total equality for all professions, including the church. They want role distinctions to be eliminated, and they want equal ministry opportunities. And this is a problem, because God does not want to submit to the feminist agenda. He wants the feminists to submit to Him. R. Kent Hughes, in his commentary in the pastoral epistle, said, If we don't let the biblical text define church order, the intrusive culture will. The spirit of the age is a tyrant to be resisted, not embraced. End quote. Francis Schaeffer, right before his death, said this, quote, Tell me what the world is saying today, and I will tell you what the church will be saying seven years from now. As mentioned a couple of weeks ago, the role of women in the ministry is defined for us not by culture, not by democracy, not even by the church. It is defined by the Word of God and the Word of God alone. While the church has banned running rather smoothly, as far as male leadership has concerned. For the last 1950 years, most recently and since about 1969, things are beginning to change, as if the church has been doing what is wrong for 19 and a half centuries. But the word of God has not changed and never will change because God's truth will not pass away until heaven and earth pass away, and they're still here. The world, whose ruler and prince is Satan, will continue to try and squeeze the church into its mold. And nothing new is ever going to be orthodox. Neo or new orthodoxy is an oxymoron. If it's new, it's not orthodox. If it's some recent thing, it's not historical Christianity. Satan has always attacked and questioned the truth, and this is nothing new. Satan started this in the garden. He said to Eve, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Well, Satan knew good and well that God did not say you shall not eat of any true tree of the garden. He knew that. God never said that. God said the exact opposite. Eat of any tree in the garden, except for this one. He purposely distorted the truth in order to begin to create questions in the mind of the woman, Eve. Like always, Satan starts small and works his way into a full-blown lie. First, he asked a misleading question, and then blatantly lying to the woman, he said, you surely will not die if you eat the fruit. Deception, by small degrees, is a hallmark of Satan's activities. And we see this in the case of the church. You see, in the garden, he basically said, you know, God is an ogre. He is an ogre, and... He, his rules are not good. You shouldn't have to obey his rules. Then he said, you know, basically God's laws are not good for us. Because if you ate this fruit, you'd be much wiser. You'd be like God. He was also implying that surely there will be no ill effects if we reject God's command. And fourth, that disobeying the uh, the express command of God is actually something good to be desired, not something evil. And this same tactic Satan is using today in the church when it comes to men's and women's roles. It's the same thing he always does. God is an ogre because he requires women to submit to male leadership. And God's laws are not good, because what His Word clearly teaches about men and females' roles is bad. And third, there will be no ill effects if we reverse or distort or go against what God's Word teaches. And fourth, women pastors, preachers and teachers and elders are really something good, not something bad. You see, the attack on male and female roles started far away from the church. It started in society. We noted this earlier when we said, first, there were outcries against genuine atrocities. Genuine problems where women were being oppressed and abused and suppressed and And they were being mistreated and there was unfairness in society. And those things should have been spoken out. We continue to speak out against those things. Those wicked behaviors of men who have treated women in an ungodly way. That is the job of society and government to speak out against that. It's the job of the church to speak out against that. But you see, then Satan moved from society to the home. He then began to say, "You know, this whole housewife thing is bad. I mean, come on, how insignificant could you be to just be a housewife? How can you, you're wasting your life raising your children, supporting your husband, just being a housewife?" This was a direct assault on the family and God's role for mothers and wives. Raising godly children and maintaining a healthy marriage is top priority over any other profession that a woman can engage in. And this more and more has caused women to move into the secular workplace they traded a large house and two new cars for the moral training of their own children. They have traded strong marriages for careers. And often, at the persistence of the husband, the leader of the home. And there is indisputable evidence that the more women have entered into the workplace, divorce has increased proportionally and exponentially. Marital infidelity has increased. Juvenile delinquency has increased. Single mother births births have increased. And now, just as the human race has suffered the consequences of Adam and Eve's sin, so now we suffer the consequences of rejecting God's plan for the family. And having corrupted God's design for the family... Having started with the branches, so to speak, of society and moved into the trunk and the branches of the family, he is now attacking the root, and that is the church. You see, the church is what produces strong godly families, and strong godly families are what produce strong societies. And so now he is trying to corrupt the very root of the tree, which is the church. And we have seen how a slow migration in the past, in the last 25 years... From are not women being abused to are not women to make their place in the career world instead of the home and are not women to have equal roles in the church. A progression by degrees. Satan always presents his best deceptions and the prettiest wrappings. He hides the sharpest hooks and the tastiest bait. And that's just how it is. We must never forget that by rejecting the word of God, we reject God. And by disobeying his word, we bring judgment upon ourselves. And there are always painful consequences when we choose to listen to the spirit of the age instead of the word of God. Now today we come to a text... 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 12, the clearest text in all the Bible about women's roles in public worship. And I want you to know, I have read more on this issue than any other issue I have ever studied. And the more I read, I just kept telling my wife, this verse is so clear that after reading all of these journal articles and all of these books and all of these commentaries, you know what I believe? I believe it means just what It says, That's all. The only thing that matters is what does the text say and what does it mean by what it says. There's such a great desire in my heart to just take all these different feminist positions and and distortions of the truth and spend the whole time today just ripping them apart because I like to do battle. And then after all of that, I will have spent the whole time not proclaiming to you the Word of God, but dealing with a whole bunch of distorted positions from women who don't believe the Bible is God's authoritative Word, who believe it's full of errors, who have denied inerrancy, and really you end up promoting error instead of preaching the truth. So what I'm going to try and do is stick to the text as close as I can. And maybe at the end of the series, I might take some time to deal with some of the strange things that are being propagated about this text and others. We've already noted that the text before us is a text that comes in the heels of verses 1 through 8, which is all about prayer, evangelistic prayer in the church. Paul says, I want want us to be praying. Praying for the lost. Praying for the salvation of the lost. Praying for men. Praying for the rulers so we can have the freedom to share our faith. Why? Because God finds this good and acceptable. Why? Because God desires all men to be saved. Why? Because Christ gave himself a ransom for all and he says, and guess what? That's why I'm an apostle. That's why I'm a preacher. That's why I'm a teacher of the Gentiles in faith. I've been appointed for this very purpose to see men come to saving faith. And then in verse 8, he says, and because of this, I want men, men only. He uses a specific word here to refer to adult males only, to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. And he addresses women in verses 9 through 15. And then in chapter 3, he returns again to males and the quality of leadership they are to exhibit in their character and their life and their giftedness. So... As we come to our text today, we have already seen in verses 9 and 10 the adornment of women. We saw that last week. Women are not to be using their appearance, their hair, their wealth, their bodies to attract attention to themselves in the worship service. Because it causes other people to stumble, to lust, uh, to envy or whatever. He says, rather they are to show themselves examples of good works, godly behavior. That is what their appearance is to be all about. So moving from appearance, Paul now addresses function or roles of women in public worship. He concludes his discussion by giving three reasons... God has made these roles, and we're looking at those next week. But today, we're just going to look at the functions themselves. In the Greek, this is just basically one unit of thought about what women um, must and must not do in verses 11 and 12. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to read verses 8 through 15, and we're going to focus on verses 11 and 12. Paul says this, Therefore... I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands, without wrath and dissension. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braiding of the uh, hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works as is proper for a woman making a claim to godliness." A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. But a woman will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. You're probably wondering, I wonder what that last verse means. And I'm wondering the same thing. We'll see when we get there. But let's look at the text and break it down and see what we have here. I just have two points. And that is this, the godly woman's instruction and the godly woman's silence. Look at verse 11. Paul says, a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. There are several Greek words that might have been used for quiet or quietly. Paul's choice Here is the word hesuchios, which means to have an internal internal quietness. It is not an external quietness as so much an internal desire to be submissive or to learn a quietness of spirit. Um, It would be the opposite of a contentious, angry, bitter, resentful spirit. They are to be, as it is, quietly listening or silently listening, as some versions have put it. This is the same word that appears again at the end of verse 12. And Paul explains that women are to have this, quote, quiet, um, non-aggressive, non-confrontive, non-bitter attitude, this quiet, submissive attitude when they, notice what the text says, receive instruction. This means they must not just be quiet on the outside, but have a desire to willingly learn from those that God has appointed to teach the church. Now, the phrase receive instruction is a present active imperative, which means this is something that should always be happening. This is not just a one-time thing. Paul says this is the continually active process by which women should be receiving instruction, always learning Now, the phrase receive instruction might also be translated to learn or to be taught so as to obey. When you look at Paul, how Paul, turn over to chapter 5 and you'll see how Paul uses this word. 5 verse 4, he says this, But if any widow has children or grandchildren, they must, and then here it is, first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family. In Titus 3.14, he uses the same thing where he says our people must learn to engage in good deeds. And so it's not just learning so that you can get a whole bunch of knowledge. It is the receiving of instruction or learning so that you can apply what you learn. This is what Paul has in mind here when he says, I want women to receive instruction. Now this is related to the noun um, that we get disciple from. Disciple, which means a learner or a follower of someone's teaching. So from what we have learned so far, just from this text, it means this. That when it comes to public worship, a woman is to learn from those men or elders that God has given to teach and lead the congregation, and that she is to do it with internal quietness for the purpose of obeying what she learns. Now, you would think that that right there would be enough said. I mean, that is about as clear as you can get it. The phrase, a woman must quietly receive instruction, is clear, it is straightforward. But, God knowing that Satan would want to distort the truth, added this last phrase with entire submissiveness. Literally, with all, every, and each bit of submission, or to the highest degree of subjection. That's what it's saying here. When it comes to teaching, when it comes to leading... This is what God wants, full submission. That's what the scriptures say. And most women, when they think of submission, I mean, their eyebrows just about jump off their face. I mean, they begin to think of, whoa, man, uh, doormat, less than, oppressed, abused. Uh, They they conjure up this guy in a wife-beater t-shirt with a beer in his hand, half drunk, screaming at them. But that has nothing to do with what the Bible teaches. Men are to be godly, servant leaders, loving leaders, who care for, nurture, shepherd, have compassion on, feed, protect the women, along with all of the flocks. And while the feminist uh, movement and the media portray submission as something bad, The scriptures portray submission as something very good and as a godly attribute. You see, submission is not something that we have an option with. Do you know that we are all to submit to one another? That's what Ephesians 5.21 says. We are to submit to one another. Now, is that bad? No. Is that a sign of weakness? No. It is a sign of strength. It takes more strength of character to submit to God's word, counter the culture, than it does to just cave in and do what culture is saying. So imagine this. You're a student. You're in junior high or high school and you're at lunch and somebody comes up to you and says, Hey, you know, I got, I got some beer here or I got some drugs or whatever. You don't want to smoke some pot. Now, you say, no, no thanks. But then they begin to badger you. Come on, man, what's wrong? You a chicken? Come on, are you, you scared? Oh, what's wrong? Your, you're afraid it's going to hurt you? You're afraid you're going to get caught? And they begin to badger you and ridicule you, and they just begin to pour on all the peer pressure. Now, what would the person of character do in this situation? Would they cave into peer pressure? Would they cave into what is common in the culture? No. They would say, no, I am not going to do what the world says because it is contrary to the Word of God. And people, that is not a position of weakness. Anyone who is weak can cave in to temptation, can cave in to the cultural norms. But it takes a person of strength and character to stand firm and say, I am going to obey God no matter what. You see, the word submission is a compound of two words. One is tasso, which means to arrange or order, and the other is hupo, which means to place under. Literally, to place under or arrange oneself under. It is like pillars under the bridge. You have pillars which hold up the surface of the bridge. Now, just because they are under the bridge, does that mean that the pillars are worthless, less than... No way. How would you like to drive on a bridge that had no support? I wouldn't. You see, there is this deception that says, if you submit, then that is a position of inferiority. Listen, we are to all submit to each other. Husbands are to submit to wives, and wives are to submit to others. We're all to submit to the church leadership, even me, especially me. We all have to submit to the governing authorities. The Bible commands it. We have to submit. Life is full of submission. But you know what? At the core of all of those things we have to submit to, you know who we're really submitting to? is God. Because God tells us to submit in all of those areas. And so to not to submit is not to submit to me. It's not violating the leadership. It's not violating your husband or your wife or one another. It's to not submit to God because He is the one who tells us where to submit and where not to submit. And even Jesus submitted. He submitted to His parents. He submitted to Jewish customs. He submitted to the Jewish leaders. He submitted Himself, according to Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, to the point of death, even death on the cross. Did that make Him less than the Father? Absolutely not, because verse 9 says, Because of that, therefore God highly exalted him and gave him a name which is above every name. So in the same way, women are not less than men when they submit to God their husbands and male church leadership. So don't buy into that lie. And many people see this verse as very chauvinistic when in fact it is very progressive in its day. The Jerusalem Talmud said this, It would be better for the words of the Torah to be burned than that they should be entrusted to a woman. I mean, that's bad. That is really bad. And you would think to yourself, man, Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. And yet here, he is not bending to Jewish tradition. He is not following the chauvinistic Jewish tradition that departed, mind you, from the Old Testament... He is saying that women need to, he commands that they always be receiving instruction, that they always be being taught the scriptures so that they can learn the whole counsel of God's word just like every other male. People, that was radically progressive. Now, if you compare that to the Greek culture, it's even more progressive. William Barclay, in his commentary on the pastoral epistle, said this, The respectable Greek women led a very confined life. She lived in her own quarters into which no one but her husband came. She did not even appear at meals. She never at any time appeared on the street alone. She never went to any public assembly, end quote. You think Paul's caving into culture here? Hardly, not even close. Close. He is stating God's intention for women all along, that they be educated just like any man. Women are not to stay at home, sit in the back of the room, remain ignorant of the Scriptures. They are to receive all the instruction that anyone else receives. And they are to receive that instruction, mind you, to obey it and to teach others and even teach men and women and children in the proper context, but not in the public gathering. That's all. A woman cannot fulfill God's purpose for her if she doesn't know God's word. So Paul says, I want women to be quiet, to receive instruction all the time with entire submissiveness. Now in verse 12, he switches. And we see the godly woman's silence in this whole issue. Paul says the same thing he says in verse 11 negatively. Verse 11 is the positive statement. This is what they are to do. And then verse 12 is this is what they are not to do. This is heads. This is tails. That's all he's doing. The same thing twice. Notice what verse 12. He says, I did not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. The first word we encounter is but, which contrasts that women are to learn, in verse 11, but not to teach, in verse 12. That is the contrast being made. Women are always to be learners and never to be teachers when it comes to public gatherings of the church and mixed crowds. Now, Paul continues, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. I just stopped there. And we noted earlier that Paul has asserted his apostolic authority. So he's not just giving his his ...his opinion because he says in verse verse 12, I do not. I mean, we notice that he always says things like, uh, I will, or I want, or I urge. Those are common phrases. He's speaking as God's apostle to the church. He's not giving a suggestion here. And what does Paul not allow women to teach or exercise authority? Now, let's look at each of these separately. The phrase, I do not allow, is a present tense verb, and it emphasizes a continual role or function for women. And the infinitive here that flows from this basically means I don't want the women to be the teacher. The teacher, the one who is the teacher, perceived as the public instructor of doctrine, of sound doctrine in the faith. According to Dana and Manny's Greek grammar, the present infinitive indicates a condition or process. Hence, the precise translation is, I do not allow a woman to be a teacher over a man. A survey of the word translated teach in the writings of Paul, and especially in the pastoral epistles explains that you, you understand that when he says this, he's always talking to Timothy or to Titus about teaching in an authoritative manner, teaching the truth of God to the congregation, prescribe and teach these things, preach these things, those kinds of terminology. So he's not just saying that a woman can't sit in the foyer and dialogue with somebody about the Bible and teach somebody about the Bible. But he's saying if the person who's up front in the position of the teacher, that person needs to be a man and not a woman. And it's not because women are intellectually inferior. Because they aren't. I've read some great stuff by women theologians. It's kind of fun just to read some articles by women where, man, these women, man, they know their stuff. And I was just wowed by this one woman who just absolutely just broke down this text and just precisely just chopped it all up and just came out with the right interpretation and it was great and it's not because they are unable to have anything to say it's just a matter of god's order and public worship that's all for instance in titus 2 4 it says the older women are to encourage literally train the younger women we know that women are to teach their children we know that when timothy was a youth That he had a mother and grandmother who had this sincere faith who taught him the scriptures. In Acts 18, verses 25 and 26, we encounter Priscilla and Aquila, this husband and wife team, who are teaching Apollos, a man that Paul described, or Luke described, as a man mighty in the scriptures. Mighty in the scriptures. Apollos was a Bible-thumping animal. But you know what he didn't know? He didn't know about Christianity. When they talked to him, if you looked in Acts 18, 25, and 26, it says that Apollos was only acquainted with the baptism of John. And so Aquila and Priscilla pulled him aside, the text says, and privately, not publicly, as a husband and wife team... Talk to him about Christianity. So, yeah, she had something to say to him. She had something to say to this man who was eloquent and mighty in the scriptures. Why? Because she knew more than he did about the Christian faith. He had only known about the baptism of John. Now, some have tried to use that one example like a big eraser to wipe out this text in 1 Corinthians 14, 34 and 35, which are clear. You can't do that. You can't use one example and use it to wipe out what the scriptures teach. There is a hermeneutical principle or a Bible study principle that is important to remember whenever you're studying historical narrative, and it is this. We must be very careful when building or forming doctrine off of historical narratives. Or to put it another way, we must be careful never to use a descriptive text... ...as if it was a prescriptive text. A text that is descriptive describes what happens. A prescriptive text is like this one here we're looking at... ...where the apostle is instructing what to do and not to do. Let me just give you an example. You go to Judges 21. You're reading Judges 21 and Benjamin because they were wicked. They went to war with their own relatives. And in the process... A whole bunch of their women all got killed. Well, there's a problem because now you've got all of these men, there's about 600 of them who need wives. And they scrounge up as many single women as they can to give to these guys, and they're still about 200 short. And so the elders tell them I'll tell you what. There's this big hoedown happening at Shiloh, there's this big dance that's going on, a feast. And all these young women are going to be coming out of the hills to dance at this place. Tell you what. You just hide in the vineyards. And when these women start dancing, you see one that looks good. You just run out there and snag them. You just take them home to be your wife. And you know what? They did. Now, does that mean whenever we need a wife, we just go out and just grab one? I mean, talk to the guy next to you who has a young daughter. He'll tell you the right answer. <laughs> you look at David, the man after God's own heart. Was he godly? Yes. Writer of many psalms? Yes. He commit adultery and murder? Yes. So we can too? No. Just because it's recorded and just because it's actually recorded and just because it's actually recorded in the Word of God doesn't mean we are to do it. And so you never, as D. Martin Lloyd-Jones rightly said, take the exception and make it the norm. You go to the prescriptive text like the one before us. The second role Paul says women are to abstain from is having or exercising authority over man. Just like to teach and exercise authority is a present infinitive too. So it would mean... A woman is not to function as the authority bearer, the one in authority. Now, some have tried to say, and this is how they get out of this, well, what it really means is to domineer, to usurp, to, to wickedly and aggressively grasp for power. But as long as women are meek and humble, they can have any position they want. Because it's only wicked usurping power and authority that is being forbidden here. But there's a problem with that. The problem is this, that teaching is something that is good. And that's the first thing mentioned. And you know what? Authority and proper roles are also good. What he's not complaining, he's not saying that having authority is wicked. What he's saying is, is the improper roles of women in authority are wicked. Teaching and authority are both commanded and necessary in the church. And so he's not talking about some wicked behavior. He's talking about two good things run amok if people are not following the proper rules. So Paul also restates what he has already said. Look at the end of verse 12. But... To remain quiet. The first part of the verse is a woman must quietly receive instruction. Then he ends the verse, but to remain quiet. These two words are the bookends. One is the foundation, the other is the capstone. And why does he put this in here? Because if they are quiet, like this word says, They are not speaking out. They are not aggressive. They are not bitter. They are not hostile. That is what all of this is talking about. You can't receive instruction if you're talking. If you're not to be a teacher, that means you are to be a listener. That's what Paul is saying. If you were to turn to 1 Corinthians 14, 34, and 35, he says the same thing there, crystal clear. 1 Corinthians 14, 34, and 35, he says this. The women are to keep silent in the churches. Now, again, this is, called, this is about public worship. It's not talking about being in the halls or being in the Sunday school or walking around or in the home or in private conversations. It's talking about in public assemblies when it comes to teaching and prophesying. The women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves, just as the law also says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church, that is to speak or preach or teach with authority in the local assembly. So Paul is not trying to stifle women. He's not saying no women have the gift of teaching. He's not saying that women are less than or intellectually inferior. He's merely saying the law states that this is the proper order that is to to occur when we gather together as a church. Now you ask yourself, why is that? I mean, why, why is that? Well, he gives us several reasons in verses 13 through 15, and next week we are going to look at that. But to sum up everything, I don't think Paul could have made it any clearer than he did. Be internally quiet, be in total subjection, receive instruction, don't teach, don't lead, don't exercise authority over a man in the forms of public worship. That's all. That's what the text says. And as Paul said to the Corinthians... If anyone has a contention against this, we have no other practices. Nor do any of the other churches of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Paul, by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, wrote down so clearly and precisely your roles for women. Father, I just pray for those women here who maybe have troubles with this who maybe in their heart are thinking, that just doesn't seem fair. That doesn't seem right. Help them to look at your word. Help them to just read what it says. And Father, help them to realize that submission is something we all have to do in various areas and it is a position of strength. It is a position of godliness. And when it comes from you, it is a privilege, not a punishment. Father, we all want to submit to you in the fear of Christ. And Father, we ask that you would continue to cause this church to grow in spiritual depth. And we will trust you to cause it to grow in numbers. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.